Well, with the time that we have uh, left this morning, I want to uh, take us back to uh, Romans, uh, our study here in Romans chapter 2. But before you uh, turn there, uh, I want to invite you to turn first to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16, by way of introduction this morning, John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, and just before Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, he promised his followers that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them after he left, and the Holy Spirit would accomplish his work in their lives and also the lives of unbelievers, and one of the key roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our world is to convict people that they are under the judgment of God. And we see this in John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And obviously that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. But then notice verse 8. And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning, notice three things, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so he gives this summary statement of the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit convinces unbelievers that they stand guilty as sinners before a holy God and are destined to be punished for their rebellion against him. And the only way they can be delivered from death and hell is to place their faith in the righteousness that God provides through his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to expand on these three things that the Spirit convicts people of in, in the verses that follow. Verse nine concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. In other words, the essence of sin is unbelief, not believing in Jesus as the Son of God and the only Savior from sin. That is ultimately what damns us to hell, is our failure to believe. And so he convicts the world of, of sin. He also, verse 10, convicts them concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. In other words, the only one who can go to the Father who can be in heaven is those who are perfectly righteous as God is righteous. And the fact that Jesus was received back into heaven by his Father is evidence that he had accepted, had approved his sinless life, his substitutionary death as payment for unrighteous sinners like us. And now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father uh, as a mediator uh, who offers to clothe us, robe us in his righteousness so that we too can live in heaven. And so the Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and then lastly, verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Obviously, that's a reference to who? To Satan, who is referred to in the Scriptures as the ruler of the world. And while he considered the cross a victory, like he had won, he had defeated, Christ and God's plan? No, actually, it was a defeat for him. And through Christ's death and resurrection, he conquered death and hell and triumphed over Satan and sealed his judgment. And all those who 
follow Christ in, or excuse me, follow Satan in his rebellion against Christ are sure to share the same fate as Satan, the same judgment as Satan. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly convicting the world about those three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, in regards to God's judgment, that's the topic that we've been looking at the last few Sundays, because that is the topic or the point, if you will, the main point of Romans chapter two. Um, It's important for us to understand that there will not be one big judgment day for everyone all at the same time. I think we just kind of generalize the judgment of God, say, hey, there's the judgment days coming. When actually, both believers and unbelievers will face God's judgment, but they'll be judged separately in two totally different ways and at two totally different times. Believers will stand before the Lord at what's referred to as the, what did we learn last week? The Bema Seat, right? And unbelievers will stand before the Lord at what is known as the Great White Throne. Last week, we uh, waded into the subject of uh, the, the Bema Seat, which is uh, described in passages like Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. Um, the phrase judgment seat of Christ is used in both of those texts, which is a translation of the Greek word Bema or Bema which uh, was used in the context of athletic competitions in Paul's day to describe the the platform where the judge would sit, where the victorious athletes were taken after an event to be examined and rewarded a a prize by that appointed judge. And so we we talked about how the, the judgment seat of Christ will be like an award ceremony where our lives will be examined by Christ himself and he'll reward us based on how faithfully we obeyed him. And, and how sacrificially we served him. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter three. This will not be a time like it's sometime portrayed or often portrayed where all of our sins will be played back on a jumbotron for all to see. That's not what the Bema is gonna be like. Believers will not be judged or punished for their sins because that would be inconsistent with the fact that Christ has already been punished has already been judged by God for our sins, past, present, and future. The Bema Seat is where believers will be rewarded for their works. And the emphasis that's placed in the scriptures is not on punishment, but on praise. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. However, at the same time, we said there's a bit of mystery when it comes to this Bema Seat judgment, as is uh, all of the teaching in scripture about the second coming or the end times or what's called uh, eschatology, future things. There's a level of mystery there and we, we can't know for sure exactly how, this, how all this stuff is gonna play itself out. But uh, you see that there seems to be in the Bema Seat passages a sense of warning. Uh, and they clearly depict some sort of sober reckoning or accounting of our lives. And we know the Bible clearly teaches that that the anticipation of seeing Jesus face to face someday should have a purifying, sanctifying effect in our lives and serve to motivate us and inspire us to live our lives in such a way that we have no remorse or regret. And so I think if we overlook 
the warning aspect of the Bema Seed, it makes faithfulness unimportant or irrelevant. Kyle shot me an email uh, on Monday, this last Monday, uh, and, and uh, was commenting on God's providence in a blog site that uh, he follows. It's called The Cripple Gate. Some friends of ours from the Master's Seminary uh, have, this, uh, have this blog. And uh, one of the authors had done a little article on Monday morning, posted a little article called Degrees of Reward. And it was all about uh, the Bema Seat. And uh, in fact, he, this, this one particular author did his doctoral dissertation uh, and uh, turned it into a book called The Preacher's Payday. And it's all about the fact that, you know, not let, not, don't let many of you become teachers because you'll incur a, what, stricter judgment. And that was uh, his, his doctoral dissertation. And so, anyway, I, I, was, I was really challenged by something that he said. The, the whole article was really helpful. But this is what he said. And, and just, just take this in this morning. He says, you know couch potato, pew-warming, bare-minimum Christians, don't you? Hopefully that didn't hit too close to home here, right? To say there is no consequence for their apathy is insulting to the missionaries who give up lucrative careers in order to suffer and sometimes die for the gospel. Let's face it, surely you don't expect the same reward for binge-watching all six seasons of Downton Abbey as the guy who has prayed the same number of hours for the conversion of the lost. I don't know if I ever thought about it that specifically, that practically. You can spend your vacation time and money on yourself at a lavish beach resort, or you can spend it on a trip to the persecuted church overseas where you endure sickness, heat stroke, and hunger in order to train pastors in theology. Neither are sinful, but do you really expect that God views both the same and that both choices are equal in his sight? Now, again, I'm not putting a damper on vacation, right? It's okay. Uh, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. But it is a challenging thought about how we invest our time and our, and our resources. He said this, your salvation is not in balance. Well, we're not talking about salvation here, like who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. No, we're talking about people who are going to heaven. No, no one is saying that some are more justified than others. No, but this recompense is heaven, in heaven is what makes the difference between generous givers, indefatigable servers, or sacrificial missionaries, and regular couch potato Christians who give the minimum their conscience allow, do the minimum their church requires, and contribute nothing to the kingdom cause besides keeping pews warmed and filled. His point is simply this. It would be unjust for God to reward all believers the same when some have been more dedicated and sacrificed more. And so there will be degrees of reward in heaven. Thankfully, as I mentioned last week, we will, have, we will be in a glorified state and so there will not be this pecking order and this, this, this jealousy and envy and you know, wishing I had gotten that or hadn't gotten, you know, it's not gonna be that way. It's gonna be a day of celebration, a day of rejoicing. Because ultimately, all of us will feel completely unworthy to be there to begin with. Just being there 
being in the door, inside the house. I'm, I can't even believe it's like the bat boy at the World Series, right? He's not saying, man, I wish I was, you know, getting up the bat here, bat and clean up for this team. No, I'm, I'm in the stadium. This is amazing. How did I get here? I don't deserve to be here. And if we do experience any sorrow or regret or shame due to the loss of reward, again, which seems to be a possibility there, I think it will be momentary. In view of passages like Isaiah 65, 17, Revelation 21, which describe the new heavens and the new earth as a place where there is no tears and the former things will not be remembered. So for believers, we said, hey, you shouldn't be dreading the behemothy judgment. It should be a day you look forward to. It's a glorious day. You should be like Paul who said in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In other words, all who can't wait for Jesus to come back, all who can't anticipate that, all who anticipate that day of seeing Jesus face to face for the first time. That's what God's judgment will be like for believers. Now let's consider God's judgment of unbelievers. And this is the part I never got to last week and hopefully we'll make a little headway this morning. But let's talk about unbelievers and the judgment that they have to, I'm not gonna say look forward to, but that they have to fear. Like believers, God's judgment of unbelievers is happening now. We talked about how God is judging the church, that, that judgment begins with the house of the Lord, and so it's happening now through uh, various means of discipline, personally and corporately. Um, God is disciplining his church and growing us and maturing us. Well, in the same way, God's judgment of unbelievers is happening now during their lifetime and also will occur when they die in the future. We learned already in Romans chapter one that God's wrath, his judgment is being poured out presently on unbelievers who suppress the truth that they know to be true about God so they can keep on living in their sin. And, and God's punishment for their ongoing idolatrous rebellion against him is, 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 is giving them over to greater and deeper sin. It goes from immorality to homosexuality to just full-on insanity. But there will also come a day in the future when they die or when Christ returns, when they will be separated from God in hell where they will await the final judgment at what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, here we have a description of the judgment of all unbelievers. The great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. Don't forget that phrase. Because that's what Paul 
is going to say in Romans chapter 2, they will be judged according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, that book of life, if you are a believer, your name's in there. And that's the book that's going to be presented at the judgment for unbelievers. So guess what? Nobody that stands before God at the great white throne judgment name is in the book of life. And that's why they will be cast into hell because they're not there. He's going to look, right? Their name's not there. It's going to be all unbelievers, only unbelievers, at the great white throne judgment. And it's at that time, all those who have not repented of their sin, those who have rejected Christ's death on the cross as payment for their sin, they will be cast into hell forever where they will experience the full fury of God's wrath against their sin. Look at 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, and this is the description of Christ's return. And I think, again, we need to view this not specifically chronologically, um, but just generally here as to what the end will look like or be like. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. He's writing to uh, believers there in the church in Thessalonica. For after it is only just, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We're talking about the just judge, right? So it's only just that God uh, would repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us well as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Again, the return of Christ here, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So again, this is talking about the return of Christ in general. We, we can get specific. Is this the rapture? Is this the second coming? What is this? I don't want to go there right this moment. But just in general, this is what's going to happen to unbelievers. And unlike the new heavens and the new earth, hell is a never-ending place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In heaven, the tears go away. In hell, they never go away. Why? Because you can never forget all your past sins. You can forget stuff in heaven. You can't forget stuff in hell. And you'll remember all your past sins, all the opportunities you had to repent and receive Christ, and so you live with regret and remorse for all eternity. And so for unbelievers, the judgment day is something to fear. It will be the most terrifying day of their lives. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to what the writer says about those who reject Christ. In fact, the title in my Bible over this section is simply as Christ or judgment. 
You choose. You can either choose Christ or you can choose to be judged for rejecting Christ. And this is what it says. This is Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject Christ, there is no other way for you to have your sins forgiven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So if you reject Christ, you're on your own. All you have to expect, verse 27, is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? In other words, those who, who, who reject Christ I mean, they're like trampling him under their feet. In fact, it's an insult to the Holy Spirit. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And here it is in verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you see, there's a big difference between the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers. And I say all that just to make sure we don't confuse the two. We don't confuse the Bema Seat with the great white throne. The Bema Seat will occur after the rapture. I believe sometime before the second coming. It's gonna be only believers there, church age believers. Uh, The great white throne judgment will occur after the millennium, after the thousand year reign of Christ. And it will only involve unbelievers. There's also a third judgment, by the way. Kyle reminded me of that this week because he's the end times aficionado on staff. He's passionate about eschatology. So if you have any questions or if I confuse you, just go to Kyle. He'll he'll straighten you out. But he reminded me there's a third judgment, the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew chapter 25. You say, what is that then? Who is that for? And when does that happen? Well, we'll talk about that if I have time in the end here, Matthew chapter 25. But here in Romans chapter two is really where uh, all of this got started. And Maybe I lost you last week. You're like, what is he doing here? It's like, are we, are we going through Romans or not, right? I just kind of went all over the place about God's judgment, but the reason is because of verse five. Romans chapter two, verse five, he talks about storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And you may want to underline that or bracket that phrase in verse five, because that is the main point of this passage, that all of us are under the righteous judgment of God. Verse six, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And again, we began looking at this text a couple weeks ago and said that what Paul does here is he explained four standards by which God will impartially judge every person. Four standards by which he will impartially judge every person. And he said, first of all, God will judge us based on knowledge. In verses one through five, therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
And so Paul was anticipating the response to those who were reading this letter and they got done with chapter one and uh, Paul knew it would have been very easy for, for, for his hearers uh, in the churches in Rome to, to feel good about themselves since they didn't practice any of those heinous things in, in, that he mentions in, no, in Romans 1 and he didn't, they, they, don't know, they don't approve of those types of sinful behavior and so it would be very easy for them to, to have a critical, condescending, judgmental, self-righteous attitude looking down their noses on all the wicked sinners in the world. Well, that's how the Jews felt about the Gentiles in Bible times, they consider themselves far more righteous than the rest of the Gentile world. And, um, and so Paul was addressing them here in chapter two. And Paul wanted them to know that just because they were his chosen people didn't mean they would be spared his judgment. In fact, they were in the same boat as the pagans that he described in chapter one. And, and so are all of us. We may not sin with the same frequency or the same depth of depravity, but we are all under God's wrath and can only be delivered through the righteousness of Christ. And so he was reminding them that, hey, God's gonna base his judgment on knowledge. And the fact that you're, you know those things are wrong and you, in fact you're, you're judging those people for what they're doing, it, 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 you're condemning yourself because you know. And then he goes on, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Don't you realize the fact that God has been merciful and gracious to you and hasn't just snuffed your life out? As a sinner you are, it's, it's, he's, it's, he's showing you his love, his mercy. He's giving you not more time to sin. He's giving you more time to repent. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that for granted. Don't abuse the grace and mercy of the Lord because if you do, what might happen is you become stubborn, but because of your stubbornness, verse five, and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and of revelation and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, when we continue in our sin and get away with it, we don't experience any kind of consequences or punishment right away, well, sometimes what happens is our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and next thing you know, our, our hearts are unresponsive and unrepentant. And in fact, what we're doing is we're actually storing up wrath for ourselves that will happen at some point in the future, particularly the great white throne judgment. I think that's what he's referring to when he talks about in the day of wrath and revelation, the righteous judgment of God. And again, oftentimes when there's references in scripture to the judgment day or this day of wrath. It's a general, it's to be taken generally that at the end there will be judgment. Now obviously there's some specific time frames and chronology that goes along with all this stuff and it's like putting the pieces of a puzzle together you know, and uh, sometimes it makes your head hurt and, and there's different guys that agree and disagree about how it all is gonna end up the bottom line the Bible wants us to know is guess what? There will be a day when we will stand before God and we need to be ready for it, period. And that judgment will be based on knowledge, but secondly, notice it'll be based on deeds. 
It'll be based on deeds, verse six, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jews first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But there's no partiality with God. Now, at first glance, you might be saying, man, how does this reconcile with the rest of the Bible's teaching about how a person is saved? I thought it didn't have anything to do with whether you're good or bad. How about it had to do with, with Christ and what he did? And if we just took Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, by themselves, we could very easily conclude that salvation is by what? Works. Because these verses seem to say that a person can earn eternal life by doing good works, and it all comes down to who was good and who was bad. But we know that can't be what Paul was saying, since that would contradict what he taught already in this letter, and also what he taught elsewhere throughout his letters, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Christ in our place. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Titus 3, 5. Romans 3, 28. I mean, to, to say that Paul was teaching that salvation is by works here would, would mean that he was destroying his own gospel that he declared in chapter one, in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He would be destroying his own gospel by saying it was, it was now, it's really now by works. I said it was faith in chapter one, but really, it really it's works. No, that's not what he's doing. What we need to keep in mind here is that what Paul is doing, he's not explaining how a person is justified, but how a person is judged. Big difference. Let me say that again. Keep in mind that what Paul is explaining here is not how a person is justified, but how a person is judged. Everything he said in this section from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 21, was intended to prove that everyone is guilty before God. And in particular, no one can be justified by themselves on their own. And he doesn't get around to explaining how a person is justified till chapter three, verse 21, where he says very clearly, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But that's in chapter three. Right now, in chapter two, his focus was on Judgment not justification. And so before he clarified that we're justified apart from works, he makes it clear that we are judged according to works, which, by the way, is the consistent teaching of both the Old and New Testament. In fact, Paul was quoting here from the Old Testament. You might see that in your Bible. It's kind of a, a, a it sets off that text in verse six to let you know that this is a, a quote from Psalm 62, 12. You recompense a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12. And he will not, and will he not render to man according to his work? 
Jesus himself repeated this principle about himself. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is a recurring theme in Revelation. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So when it comes to final judgment, all men will be judged on the same grounds. Again, not the grounds of their salvation. Faith is the ground of our salvation, right? Works are the evidence of salvation. The judgment here is that we're judged based on our works which prove whether we're saved or not, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. So works are not the ground of our salvation, they're the evidence of our salvation. And so we will be judged on the same grounds, if you will, we'll be judged on our works, which provide visible proof whether or not we're truly saved. Listen, anyone, anybody can say they're a believer, but the only way that that profession of faith can be verified or validated or authenticated is by looking to see what's going on in their life. Are they, do they have a transformed life or, or is their life in the process of being transformed? It's not enough just to, to profess that you know the truth, you need to practice the truth. And without the evidence of a changed life, we will be condemned by God as a fraud. James chapter two James said it this way, faith without works is what? Dead. The demons believe. They're more orthodox than a lot of professing Christians. But they're not going to heaven. Why? Because they've never practiced that belief. They know exactly who Jesus is. But they refuse to submit to him. John Stott said it well. He said, the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. So the presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works in our lives. He said, the apostles, Paul and James, both teach the same truth that, authenticate, that, that authentic saving faith invariably issues in good works, and if it is not, it's bogus. And so after Paul makes this, what may sound like shocking statement, that he will render to each person according to his deeds, he goes on in verses seven through 11 there, just clarifying twice that there are only two classes of people and only two outcomes to God's judgment. You're either a believer or an unbeliever who, is, who will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. And how God will determine who or what we really are is by our deeds. Notice he says to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, those are believers, they'll go to heaven. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they're gonna get wrath and indignation. Again, he repeats himself. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Jesus said in John 5, verse 28, for an hour is coming and 
in which all of you in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Again, Paul was making the same point that those who do good things, which proves that they are believers, will go to heaven. Those who do evil things, which proves that they are unbelievers, will go to hell. And in the end, it will all come down to how we lived our lives because that is the most accurate indicator of whether we were a believer or an unbeliever. What you do is a reflection of what you are. Your conduct reveals the condition of your heart. And so where we spend eternity will be determined by our works or the consistent pattern of our lives, our actions, our ambitions, our aspirations, our passions, our pursuits. That's the nature of what Paul was talking about there in verses seven through 11. What, What drives us? What motivates us? And so you could judge yourself this morning. Well, why wait for God to do it? Why don't you do it yourself? Judge yourself this morning by honestly answering these questions. Do I consistently live to please myself or to please God? Notice the word consistently. Nobody's perfect. There's times when we seek to please ourselves, not the Lord. But do you consistently live to please yourself or please God? Number two, do I consistently seek my own glory or God's glory? Yeah, there's times we all seek our own glory. But do you consistently seek your glory or God's glory? Do I consistently seek my joy and satisfaction in the things of this world or in the things of God? Listen, all of us at times look to be satisfied and happy through the things of the world, but is that the consistent pattern of your life? Where are you seeking satisfaction in the world or God? Do I consistently live a self-centered life or a God-centered life? What's the consistent pattern of your life? We're all self-centered at times, but is that the consistent pattern of your life? And one last question, do I consistently obey or disobey God's word? Again, consistently obey. What's the pattern of your life? That demonstrates what's actually happened in your heart. Because by the way, none of these things are possible unless the Spirit of God is in you. You can't produce these good works on your own, by yourself. And if you don't have spiritual affections and if you don't have a desire to do the right thing and honor the Lord and glorify him and serve him, and well, it's not like you're a bad person. It's just evidence that the Spirit of God is not in you which means you're not saved. And that's a good thing to be clear about. To not think or assume that you're saved just because you come to church or your mom and dad are saved. Or No, look at the pattern of your life. Look at the desires of your heart. These righteous deeds that God requires for, for us that will be judged by, again, are impossible to produce unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes these things possible.
let me try to make this super clear and practical if I can. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 just as we wrap this up. Matthew chapter 25, here is that third judgment. The third judgment, we have the, the Bema seat judgment, which I said most likely will happen after the rapture, before the second coming of Christ. You have the great white throne judgment, which will happen after the thousand year after Christ has returned, after he's reigned for a thousand years on earth, there'll be the great white throne judgment. But then there's this third judgment that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25 that doesn't seem to fit either of those two. For two reasons. Number one, the timing. And, and number two, because of who's there and who's being judged. Because here in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about a judgment that's gonna happen when he returns. And, and the picture here is, is when he returns to sit on his throne. So we know that's after the rapture, before the millennial kingdom. And there's a judgment that happens where there are believers and unbelievers standing in front of him. You're like, okay, so this is the Bema seat and this is in the great white throne. What is this? This is what is referred to as the sheep and goats judgment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. This is also referred to as the judgment of the nation. So this is when Christ returns at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And you've got people that have gotten saved through the time of tribulation. So there's some new believers there that are coming out of the tribulation that weren't martyred but you also have all these unbelievers who are rebelling against the Lord. And so you've got believers and unbelievers. Here comes Jesus and he sits on his throne and he divides the two. And he likens it to a shepherd dividing up sheep from goats. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Again, his judgment was based on their what? Deeds, what they did. The way they served the, the least of these, if you will. Which was proof that they had a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they were true believers. And he goes on to describe the, the goats and said, hey, uh, on the other hand, you guys didn't do any of that stuff. And they said, well, we didn't know that. Well, yeah, anytime you blew people off and didn't serve them well, you, you demonstrated that you don't know me. And verse 46 says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so those that, the sheep will, will enter the millennial kingdom and reign with Christ and the unbelievers will go to hell. Again, we can, while, while I don't think, according to my eschatology and the way I've 
the puzzle is put together in my mind, I don't think any of us are going to be there at the sheep and goat judgment. But we can learn a valuable lesson. The dividing line between sheep and goats, right? Like every other judgment, the bema seat and the, is what? Works. What you did, which demonstrates who you really are. There were some families and some folks in our church who yesterday, from my perspective as their pastor, proved that they are true sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they served a woman and her family who wasn't really involved in the life of our church but was able to come as her health allowed as much as possible and, 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 and she wasn't necessarily always the easiest person to love. Her own family would admit that and they chuckled when we mentioned that. Oh yeah, we know, she's not the easiest one. She's a piece of work and she's not the easiest one to love and somebody that a lot of people just blew off and didn't give any time to. And like, you know what? I don't need you, I'm done with you. But there was a, one particular family that I was talking to after the memorial service was over yesterday and said, you know what, you guys, what, how you loved her, how you served her was evidence of God's grace in your life that you guys were saved, that you know Christ. And it's so clear because you loved her like Christ loves you. And you get it. And for those of you that were here yesterday that I didn't have a chance to tell that too, I would say the same thing to you, that you demonstrated that you're saved, that you're a true believer. And you're not gonna get to heaven, you're not gonna get to go to heaven because you were nice to this lady. You know, or you, that you did, you know, were part of this memorial service. But that's not why you're gonna get to heaven. No, it just proves you're on your way there. Does that make sense? Is that clear? And it was such a refreshment to see that go down within the four walls of this church yesterday. Um, that we got some real sheep running around here. And that's a super big encouragement and blessing to all of us, and it should be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And while we've uh, had a quick go of it this morning, I pray that uh, what's most important, Lord, would sink in and, and Lord, that we would take home and, 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 and meditate on and, and discuss with our families and our grow groups and, and, and other people in the church. And Lord, that you would uh, help it, us to keep it really clear in our minds that we're justified by faith apart from works, but we are judged by works, our works, because that proves whether or not we're really saved or really justified. And uh, Lord, may we never get that mixed up in our head. And uh, may you grant us grace, Lord, to continue to do good deeds. Lord, not as a way to earn your favor, not as a way to work our way to heaven, but as just an outflow of our great love for you, Lord, because you have loved us so much. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you're dismissed.